Hi folks, Jack Spirico here. Today you are listening to an episode of TSP Rewind. <laughs> Commercial free versions of past episodes, podcasts, blasts from the past. I put these up when I can't do a show due to professional commitments or rare vacations. These podcasts will appear in standard iTunes, Stitcher, and other feeds, but will be titled TSP Rewind Episodes and numbered accordingly. And today we are rewinding back to December the 11th, 2018. Today's episode was originally episode 2343, Making Sausage and Making Meat as Life Skills. Um, much like yesterday, we're staying kind of in the cooking food preparation, and now we're moving into the craft mead uh, world as skill sets. And this will all be skill sets. We will get into other skill sets Uh, soon. We will not stay in the kitchen, so to say, uh, for this entire series. Tomorrow we're actually going to be talking about distilling. And then we'll go into some things like gardening and some other hard skills as well through next week. Um, but today's episode, when I was going through and looking for skill set shows, that kind of popped out at me. Because it was a twofer. You get basically two in one. How to make sausage and how to make mead. And really you learn a lot of my philosophy about how to make anything food and drink. And that is have a core recipe and then work from the core. Have a core knowledge and work from that core. And then trust your intuition. I was told a long time ago when I did a show where I was talking about cooking and I said, I don't have a lot of recipes. And when I do, they're very basic recipes that are cores to do other things with. And I really don't understand why people are so obsessed with recipes, unless they're baking or something like that. Like There's certain things if you're baking and it has to rise a certain way, you have to have a certain ratio and stuff like that. But you know, most food that we've cooked for thousands of years didn't come with recipes. If you read cookbooks from a couple hundred years ago, it, it never gives uh, a really specific um, quantity of things, especially seasonings and herbs. It'll say something like season well with salt, pepper, thyme, and oregano and basil, right, or whatever, rosemary. Uh, but it won't say, like, use an ounce of this and a quarter teaspoon of that, and that we've gotten to this place where we've become that dependent. And somebody emailed me, and he said, dude, you have what's called culinary intuition. It's a thing. Look it up. And uh, I guess I do a little bit, but I think we all do as human beings. Culinary intuition, to me, just means we know what tastes good. We know what flavors go well together. And if we just are fearless, we can make some amazing things. And, and in the world of sausage and meads, uh, these are two places when somebody says, well, I, I had mead and I don't like mead, or I've had sausage and I don't like sausage, I often feel like, well, then you haven't had enough, right? Because what is sausage? Sausage is ground meat or chopped meat uh, forced into a casing with seasonings and flavorings. So if you if you eat meat, there's a sausage out there for you. Right. And mead is basically a wine, but our primary fermentable in this wine, rather than being a fruit like a grape, is honey. Well, that can also taste like it. If you like sweet alcoholic beverages, you can make a sweet mead. If you like a dry alcoholic beverage, you can make a dry mead. If you like the overtones of something like apricot, we can make an apricot mead. If you prefer something more of a savory thing that's more of an herbaceous mead, we can make what's called a methylogen. Like... This can go anywhere. It can be really high gravity, meaning that we start with a real high gravity uh, wort. We end up with a really high alcohol drink. Or it can be what we call a session mead, 
which means it's you know in in the realm of like um, a, a bit of a higher gravity beer, somewhere in five six percent. We can make meads that are fantastic in that range, and we can make them sweet, or we can make them dry at that range. It, it's unlimited. And so this episode, even if you're not a big sausage maker or mead maker, and you're not going to be, the philosophy that it conveys is is more important than the individual recipes. That said, there are some closely guarded secrets in this one, and uh, you know, take those when you can get them from someone like me. Is all I'll say about that. And uh, with that, let's go ahead and rewind back again. We're re- rewinding back. To December the 11th, 2018, originally episode 2343, Making Sausage and Making Meads. And remember, you can always support this show how? Do your online shopping at tspaz.com. I'm going to talk today about two things that seem entirely different uh, to put together in a single episode. Making sausage and making mead. Now, you might wonder how I got there. Uh, so, uh, I just... I just knocked out three batches of mead this Sunday, and I had a lot of fun doing it. It's been a while since I've uh, I've, I've made some mead, and uh, I'm in my, my winter mead-making mode. I'm digging through my two deep freezers and finding all the fruit that I put aside, and I, I like mead. And I also enjoy just being in the kitchen and making anything, and I like to talk about on the air with you guys what I'm currently doing. I do think the majority of topics we cover are evergreen, I mean, you can go back and listen to shows from three or four years ago, and they're just as valuable today as they were back then, uh, because we don't spend a lot of time digging into the news and stuff like that. And when we do, we do it differently, right? We, we say, let's examine the bullshit behind the reporting here on the news. And it's not really about the thing. It's about deconstructing the false narrative, and that helps you with pattern recognition. So while that's the case, I do like to talk about what's going on in my life. Because that, because I'm excited about that, and I think that helps with delivery. So I was like, let's do a show on making mead. And I started thinking about that. You know, Jack, you've done a lot of shows on making mead. In fact, you did shows that were it went into every single bit of the process. So you really, if somebody wants to know exactly how, rather than the overall process to feel comfortable, they really should go listen to that show. And you could probably knock out a show on mead in 25, 30 minutes at, at the most. And, and so that's not a full show. So I thought, well, what's the other thing that I'm really, you know, excited about doing this winter and different recipes that I'm working on and all, and that was sausage. Um, I have some really cool varieties of sausage to talk to you about today. And when I started thinking about it, I, I think that, for me anyway, the, the two processes are remarkably similar once you allow yourself to be free of what other people think you should do. And, and what I mean by that is if I'm sitting around going, you know... I think that that because I went to Lonesome Dove and Chef Tim Love's group made me a jalapeno and cucumber margarita. Uh, and I don't really like heat in my drinks so much, but the cucumber was neat. So I think a cucumber would actually make a good mead. It doesn't matter if everybody else thinks that's dumb. I can try that. And if I go, and you know, cucumber's cooling, so I think maybe mint would go with that. And we'll talk about this particular mead that I came up with today. And that's exactly how it happened. And I can go make that. And because of the way that I do meads with small batch, all it's going to cost me is three pounds of honey. I've probably made several hundred small batch meads since I started really making them about three and a half, four years ago. 
And uh, Michael Jordan turned me on to the small batch method instead of always making five to six and a half gallons at a time. Um, and, and, and all of that, I've had one that, that sucked. One. one. I've had some that were better than others. And so I'm like, that's pretty good, but I probably will do something different next time. But I, I've only had one that absolutely sucked. And it's because I took a gamble on something. And it was a watermelon mead that probably if I would have pasteurized the watermelon juice would have been just fine. It was something in the watermelon itself, some kind of a natural yeast that made it taste like burnt popcorn. So there's no real risk to that. So how does that apply to sausage? So let's say that you were thinking, you know, people eat turkey and cranberries every Thanksgiving. What if we made a Thanksgiving sausage that was turkey and cranberry together? Well, you go out and get some cranberries, whether you use the dried ones or fresh ones, and maybe cut it in half and try half of each to find out. And get yourself, you know, a pound of ground meat and about, you know, two-tenths of a pound of some sort of a blending fat and make up basically two little mini meatloafs and, and roll them into little meatballs or something like that and test that as small sausage patties or something. And so what, what, what are you out? A few bucks to find out this is a great thing to scale up or no, don't do that. So they both, when taken the way that we're going to talk about them today, free you up to take well, what if, and go, let's find out. And that's kind of like why I'm considering this a life skills episode today, not so much a hard kitchen skills, but a generic life skills episode. Because there are things that, like, you really shouldn't find out by just saying, let's try it and see, right? Um, you know, there are uh, there are some things that if you if you just have... Uh, let, let's go out and see if this will work. Let's see. Uh, there's a raccoon in my chimney. Let's see if I can stick my head up in there and pull it out barehanded with no protection. That, that's probably uh, got a pretty serious consequence if you take that approach. Now, I might enjoy sitting back and watching you try, but I don't think you'll enjoy the results. You know, I've, I've talked about this before, but let's stick our penis in a beehive and beat on the roof of it and see what happens. Like these are not things to willy-nilly go out and just do. You know, maybe get your buddy to do it, see if he's dumb enough to do it, but you shouldn't do them. But there's so many things in life that have almost no negative consequences. Like, if this doesn't work, I'll be out $10 in an hour. And a person will talk about it over and over again and not do it. And it's like, you know, you've wasted so much time and energy with this idea instead of going out and giving it a shot. And that applies to cooking. That applies to testing a business idea. That applies to, you know, can I build this little thing in my shop or whatever it is. Uh, you know, right up to, well, I wonder if I ask if this person will say yes to something. And, and people get in this mode where they're kind of stuck. And, and sausage making and meat both have something about them that I think is, is, is kind of common and unique among them. And that is there's a mental barrier. Like people think like it's a magical thing. Like when you tell people you make beer, they're like, you know, everybody like now is like, oh, yeah, okay, my brother makes beer. You tell people you make mead. Generally, the first thing you have to do is explain what mead is. Or if they've heard of it and they're like, well, wow, that's like, you know, Robin Hood Day stuff. And it's, it's so easy to do. Or if they've drank the horrible honey-infused wines that get sold as meads and you give them a glass of real mead and they try that, they're like, oh, my God. And they think, wow, that's a difficult thing. And people know what sausage is, but when you tell people you make sausage, like they, they just feel like it's something that's beyond their capability, even though it's one of the most primal uh, culinary skills that exists. I, I, I mentioned in the show notes today, there was an episode 
of Bizarre Foods with Andrew Zimmer, and he was in, up on the high step in Mongolia. And they killed a, a sheep, so they're making mutton, uh, not a lamb, but a full-grown sheep. And it's kind of, he's the honored guest. They cooked the head in a fire pit and all this stuff. But So they're preparing everything, and the, the, the women are cutting up different things, and they take like all the organ meats and some of the fats and some of the leaner meats that aren't that good, and they cut it all up in small pieces, and they clean out the intestines, and they just manually shove it right in there, and they make this sausage on the fly. Now... You know, killing a sheep that's grazing on the high step when you're a Mongolian tribe and cooking everything together in one giant pit, that, that's about as primal as it gets. That, that's still around in the world today, right? That's, that, is, that is pretty far from walking down the refrigerated lanes of Kroger's or Albertsons or Tom Thumb or something like that. And yet they're making sausage. They don't have a machine You know, they were mixing some spices and stuff in with it, but they didn't have a, you know, a casing machine. They didn't have a grinder, and yet they're making sausage. I've seen sausages made. Um, I've seen some Native American sausages that are basically, you turn the inside of a fish inside out and use parts of the fish uh, and then cook that in the in a fire, and then basically it's, it's pushed back out, and you don't really eat the stomach because it's thick and it's not very good. Um, so... The concept of let's stuff blended meats into something so that it'll cook together and merge flavors is as old as humans and food, you know, beyond let's pull this apple off the tree and eat it. As soon as we started actually combining things, cooking things, and thinking a little bit beyond uh, I have this thing that I've killed and now I'm going to eat it as to how we can preserve it or make it taste good or do something unique with it or make it portable, for that long we've been making sausages. Mead is probably the oldest alcoholic beverage known to man. If it's not, it's a damn close thing. And unlike beer, um, which you can make a case for in early uh, Sumeria over 6,000 years ago, the first written language tablet that we've ever found, the earliest one we can find, was a recipe for a spelt beer. Um, so you can make a case that beer might be as old or close to as old and you know if it was written down at that point how long was the difference but mead and variations thereof like 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 you know have, have shown up all over the world and from the anthropological record almost about the same time meaning that as soon as man found honey sooner or later the natural chemical processes led to mead so These are primal things, yet people think it's difficult to do, but anybody can do it because people with nothing but the raw materials of this planet that walked around, you know, barefoot or in loincloths did it and still do so in very remote areas today. So if we can cross that bridge mentally, then we start to ask ourselves, well, what else can we get done? And that's why I see these two as a life skill. Anyway, a bit of a long intro, but I thought it was kind of important to set the stage for that. So let's just, for maybe the person that's never really listened to the show before, new today, what the heck is mead? And the, the, the most common definition that you hear when people try to explain mead to somebody that doesn't know is it's honey wine. That is true and a terrible definition at the exact same time. It is basically a wine made from honey. It is not a wine that has honey added to it, though that's what many commercial meads are. And if you've ever had a mead like Chaucer's or something like that, uh, some craft that they serve at a Renaissance fair or whatever it is, uh, you should not judge mead based on that. It would be like judging wine. If you've ever had 
when you were a kid in like late high school years or college, um, a, 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 a gutter wine, you know, like a Mad Dog 2020 and Mark and David or Night Train, uh, or even something that's not, you know, designed to destroy your liver overnight, uh, something like a, a Boone's Farm or something like that. Um, if you judged wine based on that, I think we'd agree that you would not really have a grasp or understanding of what wine is or what wine is supposed to be. And if you judge mead on the majority of commercially available meads, then you are doing, it's probably worse. It's probably worse. So mead, more accurately, is, is honey diluted sufficiently with water so that it can be fermented into an alcoholic beverage. Okay? It's, 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 it's like saying, Hard cider, like apple cider, hard apple cider, is is wine. It's true, but it's not. When you think of a hard cider, you think of a hard cider, not wine. Though technically, apple cider is a fruit wine. So think of it like that. The basic way that we make mead, I'm going to talk about our small batch. You can scale this up as much as you want. But I want to give you the, the nuts and bolts version. And there's a link in today's show notes, like how to do this, you know, And, and the Q&A section I, uh, show I did on it, I give you every single thing you need to be able to do this. But the basic overview, for those that don't remember or, or hadn't heard it yet, I make my mead based on a core recipe. I do three pounds of honey to the gallon of mead. And I say that I mean the finished product. The basic way that I make my mead is I take whatever um, fruit, herbs, whatever I'm going to do, and I put it in a one-gallon fermenter. I generally use the one-gallon bottles that apple juice comes in. Um, I drill a hole in the, the top of that, and I fix an airlock with a stopper to it. And I'll put a link where you can see the kind of airlock and stopper that I'm talking about today. You can also just put a balloon over it. You can do that. It does work. It's not as, as ghetto as people seem to think. Uh, it actually has some advantages, but generally with the bottles I use, The tops are so big, you would still need to drill a hole and put a stopper and put the balloon on the stopper. Because you, if you try to stretch the balloon over the mouth of the bottle, it's going to tear and not do its job. Uh, we do that to keep air from getting in, and that way the mead ferments with the yeast that we give it. So I take my bottle, my one-gallon fermenter, and I add whatever. If it's fruit, I put the fruit in. If it's herbs, I put the herbs in. Whatever's going in to make the mead whatever it is beyond just honey. I then pour a little bit of hot water into there, and I generally just heat hot water up with an electric kettle. And I'll talk about that in a bit when I get to the end of the show today, because our item of the day is the kettle that I use. But I, I boil the water in the electric kettle. And while I, by the time I pour it in there, it's not boiling anymore. And as soon as it hits whatever it's hitting, it immediately begins to cool, and I don't worry about it being too hot. Because if you do fruits too hot, you could set pectin, and it makes a cloudy final product. I've never had that happen the way that I'm describing now. So I'm basically pasteurizing whatever that is, the herb, the fruit, what have you. Then I add three pounds of honey, and I keep adding hot water to that honey. Put And I take I save one lid that I keep without a hole in it for these bottles, since they're all the same. I put that lid on the top, and I shake it vigorously to dissolve the honey. Once I get enough hot water in there to get the honey to dissolve so that when I turn it upside down, it's not gooey and sticking to the bottom of the bottle, I top the rest of it off with cool tap water. I leave enough headroom, and that's usually about a couple inches 
from the top so that it can ferment without blowing crap out of the airlock. And I set it aside with a loose cover on it. That's the airlock just loosely covered. Um, and then I wait for it to cool down to about 100 degrees or lower. And then I pitch my yeast and then I ferment it out. That's the whole thing as far as the, the initial process. It will ferment vigorously for between 30 and 45 days. It will kind of stop fermenting. It will be in the clear. At that point, I will rack it into another one-gallon container. You leave behind all the residual yeast, the fruit must, all that stuff stays behind. We use a thing called a racking cane for that. It is a little tube with a little thing in the bottom that keeps stuff from getting sucked up in it. And then a tube, a bent hook tube that goes down inside there like a plunger. Put a piece of uh, uh, vinyl tubing, uh, rubber tubing on there. And that goes into your other bottle. You put one bottle higher than the other. You push the racking cane down a time or two. It starts to siphon. We siphon it all the way till we leave that re residue behind. We will have quite a bit of headspace at this point. This is my controversial thing that people don't agree with, but everybody loves my meat. So take that as you will. Most people would say then, you know, you're, you're not going to get a full gallon, and you let that secondary fermentation go until it completely clears, the fermentation's finished, and then you go into a bottling process. What I do, I take clean water. I am on a well. I do use water, though, out of my Berkey for this, but you can use just tap water if you wanted to. Uh, but I would say if you are on city water with chlorine, I tend, would tend to tell you to use bottled water to make your meats. It's a buck a gallon or less. I think you're just better off. Anyway, I top that one-gallon fermenter right up to the top. A little bit of space so it's not up into the lid and up into the airlock. I put that on. I let that secondary fermentation run uh, for anywhere between two weeks to a month or even more, depending on how long that particular meat takes to finish. When there is no activity and it's crystal clear, I then rack it into a two-and-a-half-gallon carboy. I used to get them on Uline. Now, they used to be dirt cheap on Uline. Now they're not that much ex less expensive than buying one on Amazon. So I have a link on Amazon for you for this today. It is not the kind of carboy you think of if you're a vinter or a brewer. It is a plastic um, kind of rectangular-shaped jar, bottle, two-and-a-half gallons in capacity, and it has a top. And it also has a screw-on uh, spigot. And that spigot is such that if you set it on a table, it will get almost every single drop out of it without tilting it. You might have to tilt it for the last little bit. I take that 2.5-gallon carboy, I put it in my sink. I take a little step stool and put it on the counter next to my sink to elevate my secondary fermenter. Take my racking can again, and I rack into that uh, carboy. I put that carboy right up on that little step stool, and it overhangs my sink. I take my bottles, and I use that little nozzle um, cap to do my bottling instead of using what's called a bottling wand. I fill my bottles, I cap them, I label them, and I put them away to age. That's the entire process of making mead. I did, like two years ago in the workshop here at the, the farm, uh, how to make, rack, and bottle mead in a single class, and in 30 minutes, while explaining it, I made a gallon of mead, I racked a gallon of mead, and I bottled a gallon of mead. So in 30 minutes, you can make a, a new one-gallon batch, rack an existing batch, and bottle a batch. The reason I like this, you can get into a process where you're making a gallon of weed a meek, a gallon of weed, a gallon of weed, a gallon of mead a week, 
or a gallon every other week or a gallon every three weeks or whatever it is. And once you get that process rolling, you know, on mead day, whatever day that is for you, you can make a batch, rack a batch, bottle a batch, 30 minutes, cleanup is easy, there's no spilling because it doesn't count if you spill in the sink, even my wife agrees with that. It's not really spilling if you spill in the sink. So it's easy, simple, fast, you can get a lot of variety out of it, you get freedom to to try anything and everything that we talked about today. So I really like this process. And, and I know that's the abbreviated process, but again, I'll give you some links in today's notes if you want to get all the details of how to do this. I want to keep this a high-level thing today. So let's talk about choosing honey for your meats. Um, there are people that I see in forums and things like that online, and they're like, I only use 100% non-filtered organic honey from a beekeeper I know down the road who uh, says a prayer to the Celtic gods when he harvests his honey and his bees. He has trained them only to go to these specific flowers. And shut up. Shut up. You know, and if you want to do and you want to make a batch of mead with like a really superior honey, I think it's a fantastic idea. What I say shut up for is some of these guys are like, and if you use honey from the store or you use honey from there, it's not real mead and you're an idiot and you shouldn't shut up. Shut up. I use whatever honey I can get under the circumstances I'm currently dealing with. Um, I do use a lot of honey from beekeepers. I know a lot of people that keep bees. I am a honey fiend. I will get honey from any beekeeper I can get it from. Uh, and barter, beg, trade, buy, I don't care, I will get honey. Uh, when we do the barter blanket, beekeepers come here, if they have honey, I will barter for honey as quick as I'll barter for 22 long rifle. Um, so I, I love using, basically, in most instances, then you're dealing with a wildflower honey. And, and, and that just means that we don't really know where the honey came from. There's not any one dominant thing that the bees were working Uh, they work throughout the season. They use whatever was available, and it will vary widely regionally. When I travel, if I can get honey without, you know, like bartering a kidney for it or something, I always try to come back with at least three pounds of honey from anywhere I go. That way, when I come back from Tennessee, for instance, and I came back with three pounds of sourweed honey, I can make a batch of sourweed honey mead. If I'm smart, I'll come back with at least six pounds, and I'll make kind of a plain, everyday mead that's just honey and yeast and a little yeast nutrient, um, and, and, and then I'll have a pure version of that honey. Or my favorite thing to make will be my three flowers blend that we'll talk about in a bit, and I like to make that with honey from all over the country. And since I love that so much, I pretty much stopped making just plain meads. The Three Flowers Blend is a beautiful mead we'll talk about in a minute. And it's interesting to sit down and taste a Three Flowers Blend mead made from a Tennessee sourweed next to a Three Flowers blend, uh, mead made uh, with a uh, North Dakota clover honey. It's very interesting to, to just counter those. And I used to do it with just the plain meads, and now I like the Three Flowers Blend. Um, and then I'll, I'll, when I make that, I'll say to myself, so what... What would that honey pair well with? Like, would it make a good pear ginger mead? Would it make a good apple ginger mead? Would it make a good coffee mead? You know, what have you. I also like to make a lot of mead. So there's a limit to how much local, you know, unfiltered uh, honey and, and, and travel honey and stuff that I can get my hands on. So I will use just about any honey, but here's my rules for honey. Number one, if I can get it, I prefer to use honey that is 100% U.S. honey. 
Um, I'll talk about why in a second, but that's my number one preference. Number two uh, would be if I can't get U.S. honey, can I get U.S. And, or Canadian or a combination thereof honey? Number three would be anything in the Americas. So Argentina does a lot of honey, and there hasn't been, to my knowledge anyway, a lot of problems with what's called adulterated Argentinian honey. What I will not use, and I don't mean for mead, I mean what I will not, I will not buy honey that comes from um, Japan. You know, Japan I probably would. I've never really seen Japanese honey. Uh, China or any uh, of the Asian nations or Russia, um, pretty much anything off the, 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 the continent of North and South America, there's enough available otherwise that I don't have to do that, so I'm not going to go and do that. Here's why. China is a cheater, a great big giant cheater. Uh, the U.S. and Europe have both developed tests to determine if the honey has been somehow adulterated. In the beginning, they just would make you know um, sh sugar syrup and blend it with the honey to cheapen it, And they would export that. So we developed tests that determined, well, you're using, you know, cane sugar. And then they determined, well, you know, if we use a rice syrup, they can't tell what their tests. So they, you know, and they just keep doing these things to basically not actually provide honey when they said they're providing honey. And there's enough actual honey in it that it um, is almost impossible for you to taste it and know it's not honey. You might know it's a lower quality, but it's you, know, you can't tell that it's not honey. And the whole point of mead is to be using honey. You know, if I wanted to make sugar syrup uh, wine, then I would make that. You know, if I want to do an invert sugar and I boil it until it turned brown, and I, I, then I would do that. I wouldn't, you know, use honey, which is a more expensive product. I'm doing this for a reason. Um, so there hasn't been a lot of problem with adulterated honey out of anywhere in the Americas. And... Because of that, I'm much more comfortable with that. Dutch Gold is a brand that I use. It's U.S. honey only, and we haven't had any, any real problems with that in the United States. We do have a lot of people in the United States that are producing honey as they feed their bees sugar in addition to what the bees forage. I would prefer not to have that, but I don't have a huge problem with that. So there's my order of preference. Again, it would be some sort of local... Produced honey, and I don't mean local to me. I mean like I know this person down that road right there made this honey, um, where it comes from a single beekeeper. So if I and I put that on equal footing, like if I have a friend Jason here that does honey up in Oklahoma. I have another guy that was my bee mentor, Jason, locally. That's mostly cotton honey is what he produces because he does pollination for organic uh, cotton farms in Texas. So if I get honey from either one of those guys, I kind of put that on equal footing. I know Jason's like, what? But no, I understand. But what I'm saying as far as my preference is when I, if I travel to Tennessee and I know there's a local beekeeper there that sells their honey at the shop because that honey comes from a single source. All it is is beautiful golden nectar pushed out of the, the, the comb and put in a jar. And, and that's my number two, U.S. only produced, number three, the Americas, and then number four, anything outside the Americas, unless I am 100% sure of the source. There are some beautiful honeys from all around the world. Ireland produces some gorgeous honeys. Um, France produces some amazing honeys. Australia produces some amazing honeys. Honest to God, China produces some amazing honeys. Um, but unless it's a source that you can identify, if it's in a bottle in a store and it's 100% U.S. honey, I know what's in there is honey. If it's you know Chinese 
product of origin, I know that what's in there probably is not all honey. And, and that's how I make my decisions, and that's, that's, that's that. Um, let's talk about making mead sweet or dry. Somebody recently emailed me and says, well, what's the sweetest mead you ever made? And I'm like, well, unless you count accidents, never. I don't like sweet meads. I, I like a dry, fully attenuated mead. But I can tell you how to make mead as, as dry or as sweet as you like. And it all comes down to what is the yeast capable of doing and what is your potential alcohol volume uh, of the must that you make. And I don't even know if that's the right term for mead. Must is when we're going to make a wine and we've squeezed our grapes and we've added any adjuncts that we need to that and we haven't put the yeast in there yet and it's, it's, it's not wine. It's grape juice with the potential to become wine. That's your must. With, with beer... When we're in that state, we've, we've boiled everything down, we've incorporated the hops, we've done whatever we're going to do, and then we have a wort, right? So I, I would say mead, being most analogous to wine, is, is a must. So we have our must, and what does that must have the potential to become? Again, I do three pounds to the gallon. That is going to, now, there's some differentiations, well, what kind of honey is it, how dried out is it, etc. But in general, honey will ferment out to about 5% per pound per gallon. So three pounds has a potential alcohol volume of 15%. The yeast combination that I use can, can ferment to 18% and 19% alcohol, which means that the yeast has the ability to consume every bit of sugar in there and reach the maximum potential of alcohol. Even if I'm adding apricots or cranberries or something like that, you know, I'm going to be doing like four cups of child toll fruit to the gallon, So I have maybe the ability to boost the potential somewhere between 1% and 3%. That means I'm still sitting somewhere between 14% and 18%. That means my yeast will always fully attenuate. I did that by design. There's a lot of things we can do. One thing you could just do is just use more honey. So if you added a half pound and you went with 3.5 pounds, you're going to be able to then have a 2.5% higher alcohol volume. And even with a yeast that's capable of getting that far, you add some fruit, and now you're pushing it, and the yeast is going to start petering out. It's going to leave a little bit of residual sweetness, a little bit more. Um, the other thing we can do is adjust down. Find a yeast that can attenuate to 14%. Okay? And then make my standard recipe or do that little bump and a little extra half pound. And then you figure out how much is going to go unfermented, and that will be your residual sweetness. And that's all there is to it. And because this is easy and you're only making a gallon at a time, you can always test that theory. The other thing you can always do is you can make up some honey simple syrup. How do you make that? 50% water and 50% honey. Okay? So make up some, just like you would use for making cocktails, make a fully attenuated uh, a mead, and then instead of adding it when you bottle it, kicking the fermentation back off, add it when you taste it, and take it to the sweetness that you want, and then do the math to figure out how to get there, which is a little bit too complicated to go in and not lose you in an audio show, but that's one way to do it. Or if you like fully attenuated dried meads, because you're like me and you like mead that's good, Um, and, and you have somebody in your life that would like meat a little sweeter, sweeten their meat when you serve it to them. You can, uh, see, adding sugar to an alcoholic beverage is like, it, it's like adding salt to food. You can always put more in, but you really can't take it back out. 
So those are different ways to adjust that, and, and, and I'll, I'll leave it at that today. Let's talk about aging mead. Everyone's aged mead, man. The older, the better, you know. Um, mead does age well, primarily because most meads are pushing somewhere between 14% and 18%, and I've pushed meads up into the realms of, like, with some techniques and some ideas, you know, in the 20% and, and, and a little bit higher. Uh, without doing any fortifying with, with spirits or anything. That's just a straight fermentation. Um, anything with that high of an alcohol content will age well because alcohol is a natural preservative. Uh, things like my Three Flowers Blend have a lot of herbal preservatives in there as well, so they're going to age well. But when meat is first finished, it has a brightness. And... Aging will drop the brightness and increase the complexity. And there's a point where, if you think of the two things happening, there's a crossover point where you probably have reached the peak. And now your brightness is in decline and your complexity begins to wane. Or it increases to a point where it's not balanced by the brightness anymore. And how long is that? Every mead's different. And that's why it's really great when you make a gallon of mead. Um, once you've made it once, the next time you make it, make two gallons. Because, it, 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 I mean, it literally is so easy to make two gallons. Once you get a feel for this thing and you kind of are uh, on a roll with it, so to speak, you really can just fly through it. I've said this before, but uh, at the workshop here where I did small batch mead as an instructional Uh, I had an hour to present, and I said, I am going to do the entire process in 30 minutes and give you guys 30 minutes for Q&A, and I'm going to make a batch of meat. And everybody's like, oh, okay, you're going to make a batch of meat in 30 minutes. I said, and I'm going to rack a batch of meat. And kind of people looked around and said, so racking is when we go from one fermentation to another. So I have a, a mead that's finished, a mead that's, uh, you know, like three-quarters of the way finished, needs to go to secondary, so I'm going to do a uh, rack, I'm going to make, and I'm going to do that in 30 minutes. And oh, okay, well, yeah. And I said... And I have another batch of mead. Here's a finished gallon of a rose mead, and I'm going to bottle it. So I'm going to bottle a gallon, I'm going to rack a gallon, I'm going to make a gallon in 30 minutes. And you can see people kind of shaking their heads and looking around. And, you know, like 29 minutes into it, I was finished. And I didn't even rush. Uh, so once you get this process down, it's quick. So when you're going to age a mead, you know, once you've made it once and it's kind of tested out as something I think will do well with age, you know, make two gallons of it. Make two gallons of it, and that way you have more to age a little bit longer over time. And try your meads and test your meads, and then find kind of what is the point where maybe it's not the best this mead will ever be, but it's kind of reached the point where waiting longer has a point of diminishing returns. Because, again, the brightness that comes on early and the complexity that comes on over time, uh, those things kind of reach a point where they, they kind of reach a maximum potential, and then the, the brightness begins to fade to the point where you've kind of lost it, and it's not really there anymore, and the complexity can't really do much more for you, and it even begins to wane. Um, and this is the beauty of a core recipe. So I've said my core recipe is three pounds of honey to a gallon of mead, I use the same yeast blend every time, the cuvee, the pastor blanc. That's in the show notes for you to be able to get a hold of that. Um, I use a little bit of Fermax yeast nutrient, and the only thing that changes is, well, what's going in there? And generally with fruit, if I'm using whole fruit that's, that's fresh or frozen, I use four cups to the gallon. And that means if I'm trying something completely new, I already know how to make it. 
I don't have to refer to a book. I don't have to look at anything. And then, well, maybe I decide, you know, that could use a little bit more or a little bit less. Or I make an adjustment like, well, I want to do apricot, and I don't have fresh apricots, so I'm going to use dehydrated apricots. So I'm going to use, you know, two cups of dehydrated apricots instead of four cups of fresh apricots to the gallon. That that just, you know, kind of uh, makes sense to make those types of adjustments. And because, you know, you have a, you fit a lot more into a smaller volume of a dehydrated product. But it's so simple. And, again, once you have that core, that's what lets you just bang through it. Like when I mentioned the rose meat, I used a cup of rose hips and a, a cup of rose blossom uh, petals. Why? Seemed about right. In fact, no, you know what I used with that? It's just I'm saying, because you do it from memory and you just think about it, I used a quarter cup of dried rose hips and three quarters of a cup of rose blossoms because it seemed about right because I used three quarters of a cup of the three flowers blend in that recipe, so it seemed like that's about the round amount of flour, and then the rose hips would have this thing, so that was it, and it was, it was that simple. And so if you come up with something and you really like it, you might want to jot it down, but how much do you really need to jot down? Only the variable. And it keeps you rolling fast. So here's some meads I have either going right now or I'll, I'll make. At any time, I have some Three Flowers Blend going because it is my favorite all-time mead. And the one mead that I feel like I can say, this is my mead. This is a mead I created. Like, you know, I might make an apricot mead and maybe I do it my way. But in the end, how many people make apricot meads? Everybody with an apricot in their hand and some honey. Right? It's just a fantastic pairing. Um, so... Three Flowers Blend came about, I was, I was playing around making different teas, and I decided, well, it might be cool to make a tea with chamomile, uh, an elderflower, and heather flowers, because, well, why not? So I made up a little jar of that, and I tasted it, and I, I didn't really care for it. It was pretty bitter, um, and kind of had a sour thing, and I just thought, this is just not something I want to sit down and enjoy as a tea. It wasn't something I couldn't drink, but I didn't really want to. And I sat and I thought about kind of a little bit of a medicinal quality, a little bit of bitterness, and I thought, you know, this might be to mead what, what hops are to beer. And maybe this is the IPA of meads. And I almost hate saying that because... I don't really care for IPAs in general. I think they've been overdone. Everybody has one. Everybody's racing to see who can throw the most hops in them. Um, but the original idea of an IPA is a fine idea, and there are some good IPAs. And so IPAs, India Pale Ale, uh, was called that because it was originally beer that the British made for their troops in India. And they made it in, in, in England, and it had to go on a ship. It had to go all the way around the Cape of Africa and up to India because there was no Suez Canal. And it took quite a while, as you might imagine. And it went through a lot of temperature fluctuations, and it's down in the ship's hold, and it got really hot, and it got really cold, and it would be there for a long time. So by adding a lot of hops and a lot of the hop acids, there's natural preservatives there, that made the beer last. And when the, the soldiers got their beer and the army marched on its stomach, and the stomach included both food and beer at the time, um, It didn't taste like piss, and your soldiers stayed happy and kept doing their job. And that's where the idea came from. So the thing about the Three Flowers Blend, it ages really well because it has that preservative nature of those herbs in it the way an IPA does. And what I've really liked about it is anybody that's brought me a mead and said, well, I made mead, a lot of times I'm like, oh, that's okay, it's pretty decent, whatever. You know, I made a strawberry or made an apple or whatever. No, that's okay. Uh, and it's never quite like... Yeah, that tastes like my apple meat, or that tastes like you know my strawberry meat, or whatever. Um, though, I mean, again, I'm not putting it down. I'm just saying it hasn't been like it's like I would do that a little differently. 
when people make my three flowers blend and they bring it to me, I'm like, I know exactly what you did and you did it right. And, and about the only variable then will be the honey. Like whatever kind of honey they use will change a little bit of the character of it. So um, I, I really dig that. It's it's not quite caught on to the level that I would have expected by now. I think I first made it about four years ago. But I do know that it is actually kind of hard to find heather flower in quantity. Chamomile and elder are so common they're easy to find. And my source of, of heather flower was always um, Horizon Herbs. And sometimes they have it and sometimes they don't. And it seems like they started having shortages of it right about the time that I made this recipe public. So I know a lot more people are maybe making it than are talking about it. Uh, I have yet to see a commercial meadery, even with small nanometeries or something like that, come out with a version of it. Um, I would love to have my name associated with it if they ever do. I don't want to go after them for money or nothing. But I do feel like, again, every other meat I've ever made, somebody has made some version thereof prior to it. And this is kind of my contribution to the mead community. Uh, another thing I mentioned was apricot. Apricot and mead just pairs perfectly. Um, cranberry orange. I make cranberry orange mead every year now. I use four cups of fresh cranberries uh, and a single can of mandarin orange slices in water. Why do I make this? Because every Thanksgiving I make a little bit of cranberry sauce. And I get the ocean spray cranberries and I get a can of the little orange dealy whoppers Uh, and I make my cranberry sauce. And I make a small amount because it's not a huge hit around my table. Cranberry sauce, even though I make real cranberry sauce instead of that jello gelatin crap that comes in a can, uh, it, it doesn't, I don't have to make a lot of it. So it just seemed natural. Just take this stuff and drop it in and make a mead, and it makes a fantastic holiday mead, Thanksgiving, Christmas time mead. The cranberries are tart. The orange brings a little bit of sweetness. They'll be careful with citrus. Uh, in your meads, I'll talk a little bit that as we wrap this half of the show up in just a second, because uh, citrus is basically all the same at its core. It's just different sweetnesses and flavors that are in there. So an orange and a lemon, you know, the orange has a lot more sugar and a little bit of a different flavor. But in the end, if you use yeast and ferment out all the sugar, orange is very sour, just like a lemon or a lime. So... Uh, in many instances, the way to bring citrus to the party is better to do so with the zest, not the rind, the zest. Take a zester and zest that. So um, you could make this with the cranberries and use the zest of a couple oranges and no juice if you wanted to. But I found those little mandarin orange things in the can. Just dump them in there. They actually come out really, really nice with the cranberry. You get this tart, really cool seasonal mead. Um, again, everything here is three pounds of honey to the gallon. Just core recipe. Uh, coffee and vanilla. Uh, I found that to work really well with about two cups of coffee instead of four. And I like to use whole bean. And I like to put it in my coffee grinder and just pulse it till the beans are cracked, not ground like you'd make coffee. Throw it in your fermenter. Cover that coffee with hot water to pasteurize it and begin the extraction process. Add your honey. Use enough hot water to dissolve it. Top it off with cool water. Pitch the yeast once you're below 100 degrees. Same recipe every time. All that goes in changes. Cucumber mint. Um, the, true story. I completely came up with this from an organic mental process. I went to, to Lonesome Dove. They did a cucumber uh, margarita with a little bit of mint and jalapeno in there. Didn't really think the jalapeno would fit well. I generally don't like hot pepper meads. It tends to the capsaicin coats your lips and it's persistent. It doesn't go away. Um, so I'm not really a fan of that. Uh, I've done some other things to put some spice in meats, like grains of paradise, uh, black pepper, things like that that I've preferred to a capsaicin from a, a true pepper plant. Um, 
But I thought, you know, cucumber and mint, that might make a good mead. I made it. It was fantastic. I make at least a gallon of it every year. It's one of those things you let people taste it, and they're like, well, there's mint in there, but there's something else, and I know what it is. You go taste it again, and they're like, taste it again. They're like, but I, I, I can't play. I don't know. And it's just so foreign. That it would, and as soon as you tell them it's cucumber, you see their eyes love it. go, that's what it is, and they love it. Uh, so cucumber, mint. Now, I, like I said, I feel like Three Flowers Blend is my meat. When I made this, I'm like, I made something nobody else made. And then I heard an advertisement on the Got Mead podcast for a cucumber mint meat out of a meadery in New Jersey. Like one of the new small, you know, real meaderies that makes real mead. And I went, they didn't get that from me. I know that's, that's, you know, what I'm saying. Like other than Three Flowers Blend, I feel like everybody's already done it. I'm sure somebody has. I haven't seen it yet, but I'm making my first batch of Gumi uh, mead this year. Gumi being the plant that's very similar to Autumn Olive. The berries are a lot bigger. They kind of taste like a cross, like some kind of a cherry but they're not really a cherry, and they don't have that medicinal quality that cherry can when it's fermented, so I'm really excited to see how that comes out. I have not actually made that yet, but it's four cups of gummy berries to three pounds. Of, see, it's the core recipe over and over again. And lastly, probably one of my favorite meads to make is persimmon. Persimmon mead is just, it's, it's a special thing that you should experience. And I use about four big persimmons. Uh, that doesn't quite come out to four full cups, but I find with persimmons, it's enough. Um, I'm pretty greedy and stingy with my persimmons that I grow on the property because I don't get that many yet, so I use four. If you use a non-astringent persimmon like a Fuyu, you just cut it up throw it in there. Uh, don't worry about it. If you use an astringent variety, with which most persimmons are, that's where, like, you remember the Coyote Roadrunner show and he, the, the, the Roadrunner pour alum in the coyote's mouth or however it ended up working out and his mouth would all shrivel up and he couldn't eat anymore? That's, that's you know, the way tannins work and, and, and they cause that puckering, a serious puckering effect. Most persimmons will do that to you until they're called, you do what's called bledding. And that basically means they sit out until they get really, really ripe and soft and they taste sweet. So taste your persimmons. Once you've gotten past that point, you can make mead. Biggest reason I bring that up, I have found with fruit, the best thing you can do to make a good fruit mead is freeze the fruit. And if you're going to freeze your persimmons, bled it before you freeze them. Uh, and then you take your frozen food. It causes all the cells to rupture. You get a good extraction. And the best persimmon meads I've ever made have been made with frozen persimmons. Uh, you generally, I get persimmons pretty early in the year here. I'm not really in mead-making mode when they're on the trees. I take them off the tree, I throw them in a, in a Ziploc bag, and throw them in the freezer. Uh, and I get really great mead that way. Persimmon paired with orange. And um, I have found that, again, the orange zest and then maybe the juice of the orange, but not the white part. It's too bitter in there. And uh, that persimmon orange is fantastic. So those are the meads that you can try uh, that, that I've kind of proven out to be worthy of being made. I'm going to do a lot of plum meads. I'll try anything that sounds good. Again, that's what I want to encourage you to do. You notice I gave you a core recipe and kind of the guidance with all these other things. That's how I want you to be. This is a life skills podcast, folks. The whole thing is, but today especially. But TSP is about developing life skills developing intuition, developing pattern recognition, and being fearless in things, and going out and just trying them. There's not a huge consequence to making one bad batch of mead when you only have three pounds of honey to the gallon, and you made one gallon. You don't make that one again. Or you figure out what you did wrong, and you make it right. right? Don't, you, you know, it's not getting an F where you're going to get your permanent record, and Sasquatch is going to ride away with it on Unicorn. It's, 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 it's not a big deal. Just go out and give stuff a try. 
Um, and I'd love to hear from you guys today what meads you've made and what meads you really like. And just the, don't give a full recipe, just give the basics. Or give your core and say, and I throw this in there. And, and start getting that mindset going. So let's move on to making sausage. Uh, my, my image for today's show is from the movie Ricky Bobby. And it's when Ricky and his dad are in their car and Ricky's learning to drive again after his traumatic incident. Uh, and uh, if you've never seen the movie, you may not get the joke here, but Ricky says to his dad, I've based my whole life on no one wanting to see how sausage is made. And his dad says back to him, what? I was high when I said that. Making sausage is awesome and easy. And I thought it would be a good image for today's show because sausage really is a an easy thing to make. And I think what we need to do to understand how easy sausage is to make is to get past the belief that all sausage comes in a case. We intrinsically know this because we buy breakfast sausage. It comes in a plastic tube. You cut it open. You make patties, and you make breakfast sausage. Well, it's sausage. Then really what sausage is is meat blended with salt, herbs, spices, and seasonings to make a product that is combined in such a way to be pleasing to when we eat it. Sausage is a meatball. You know, sausage is a meatloaf. Those are both really, in a way, types of sausages in some way, shape, or form. And that means that in our demystification of sausage, we can always test an idea without any special equipment. As long as the meat's already ground or we have a grinder, uh, we can mix stuff together. We can let it sit for a while to take up the flavors. We can roll it into little balls or little patties. We can fry it up. We can grill it. We can taste it and go, yes, this is worthy of the adventure that is sausage making. And here's the modifications and the ways that I'll do it. And then I will decide to case or not to case. That will be the question. And uh, don't worry, I won't uh, adulterate Shakespeare today in Hamlet. But um, in general, I think a lot of sausages really scream, please put me in a sausage casing. Please make me into that you know sausage format that people think of and cook me that way because it does change things. But all sausages can start as a loose sausage crumble that we determine whether we want to make it or not. And as soon as we give ourselves that freedom, then not everything has to be complicated. We don't have to make 800 pounds of it to make it worth doing. It doesn't have to be smoked or aged or anything else. It's just seasoned meat. That's all that it really comes out to being, and that demystifies it. Now, when it comes to casing, there's two primary types of casing. There's collagen casings, and there's natural casings. And there's some other options, but that was what we're going to stick today. Natural casings are some form of intestine, generally hog intestine. They're cleaned, and they're packaged in some way, and they generally need to be soaked. And they're, they're kind of... Um, fragile, uh, and they're kind of fiddly, and they probably make the best sausage. But this is my thing. I am a modern Renaissance man, right? I like to do lots of things, and the faster and easier I can do something, the more likely it is for me to do it. So I can either sit around waiting for the perfect honey so I can make my mead and only make five-gallon batches and every bit of my sanitation must be perfect. Oh, back to the mead real quick. My sanitation, there's all, you know, use old-school bleach and then there's star sand and all different ways and boil this and that. I clean everything really well with hot water and I make my mead. And that's it. 
If something has been maybe laying around and not really taken care of, I'll hit it with some hot boiling water. But in general, I take my fermenter, I turn my tap water all the way up to the highest setting, as hot as it'll get. I rinse it out. I rinse out my airlock, and that's it. And just real quick, you know, I can either wait for it to be perfect or I can actually do it on an ongoing basis. That's how I feel about my sausage. So I like to use collagen casings, and you can either get them in kind of a smoked mahogany look or a clear. Uh, generally speaking, the darker the casing is, the tougher it is, and then it will stand up a little bit better to hanging in a smokehouse or things like that. Some of those have a little more snap to their bite, so they make better snack sticks and stuff like that. So basically a Slim Jim, guys, is a sausage. It's not a very good one, but if you're making snack sticks and stuff like that, you're making sausages. It's all the same, and it's kind of cool to think about it that way. Um, again, I like the collagen casings because they're easy. And these are basically made from cowhide. They're completely edible. Uh, they also will peel off of your sausage really easy if you want to. Uh, a lot of times if a sausage has been cased for a long time, you could peel it before it's cooked and cook it, and it'll stay true to its form if you really want it. I don't generally do that, but you could if you wanted to. Um, there is something about sausage being held in that form and allowed to have everything kind of mingled together that changes its taste and its texture and things like that. We'll talk about that in a bit. So, again, there are reasons to case your sausage. There's a reason people do it in the first place. Um, I pretty much do almost all my sausage in one and a quarter inch uh, collagen cases from a company called The Sausage Maker. Uh, they're available on Amazon, and I have a link to them today, and I use the clear ones. Uh, this is the most analogous to a true sausage made with a natural casing that you can get. Uh, in appearance and in texture without having to fiddle around with the natural casings and the water. And it's it, it, it's just a pain in the butt, and it takes a lot longer. The natural casings come, they're kind of in a like a like a slinky-type arrangement, and you pull enough off to fit on the tube of your, your, your sausage maker. You, you cut it off, and you twist the end into a little twist, and you can either just twist it and hold it, or you can tie a little piece of butcher's twine on it, and you start running your press, and it fills up. And it's really easy. Um, you could stuff them a little tighter than you should, but you're probably not going to have them rupture or break on you like you have them with natural casing. So I just prefer them from a logistical standpoint and from a texture and taste and finished product. I actually do prefer the natural ones. I don't have time to jack with them. Um, next up, I want to talk a little bit about um, smoking sausage. Smoke sausage, smoke sausage. I made some uh, venison and pork jalapeno garlic sausage, and I took it toward the kind of uh, Spanish chorizo side with a, some chili and some paprika and some other seasonings this year, and it was fantastic. I made about 20 pounds of it, and it was beautiful. And I made a big patty of it to test it before I stuffed it, and I cooked it like a hamburger, and it was incredible. And then I stuffed all my sausage, and then I smoked it. And I cold smoked it for like 14 hours. Cold smoke, mind you. And I really didn't like the way it came out. Everybody that ate it loved it. I served it alongside three very expensive gourmet sausages that I bought at the workshop. Most people actually seem to prefer my sausage to everything else. The reason I was unhappy with it is because I knew it made a better fresh sausage than it made a smoked sausage. I have made a rule for myself from now on. I can always smoke sausage in the future, but I can never unsmoke it. So most of my sausage will be fresh, and then if it's going to be frozen, frozen. And if I want to smoke it, I will smoke a pound or two of it. I will see how it comes out. 
and I will decide whether or not that particular sausage is good for batch smoking or better as a fresh sausage. Um, the reason people tend to smoke you know, 15, 20 or more pounds of sausage at a time is because it's the same work, right? It's the same amount of work to smoke you know, one pound of sausage, the same amount of material and wood and everything else. Um, so what you can do is smoke some sausage the next time you make a pork shoulder or a brisket. You know, take out a couple pounds or a pound of that particular sausage you made. Try to smoke it. Decide when you batch it, do you want to batch smoke it, or do you just want to try it that way? Because you may find that a certain sausage you prefer in a fresh sausage. And, you know, it's it's like salt. You can always add it, but you can't take it out once it goes in. Um, next, I want to talk about grinding your meat and how to perfectly grind your meat. And I've done this before, but I'm going to do it again because it just will make your life so much easier. Cut your meat to the appropriate size, put it in some kind of a bin, bowl, etc., throw it in the freezer. Freeze the meat to where when you pull it out, it feels frozen, but you can push on it and it gives a little bit. Right there, 99% of your grinder problems are gone. It's especially true of like high fat content, fat back, things like that, where you're trying to add fat to the meat. Uh, beef fat, we'll talk about that in a bit. It's one of my little hacks. Um, all of those things, if you put it in the freezer, it will grind so much better. Number two, the grinder is made of multiple parts. You have your housing, your main housing, your grinder. That's not going to happen here. But then you'll have a, a, a ring that holds the, the plate, the grinder plate on, and that plate will have different size holes and it'll decide how coarse your grind is. Take that ring off, take that plate off. You should do this every time you put your grinder away, clean all this stuff anyway. But that plate will then have a blade that goes up against it, like a little fan. Take the blade, the plate, and then what will force the meat out of the housing of the grinder through the plate and to the blade is called the screw. When you look at it, if you've never seen one before, it'll be obvious what I'm talking about. Those three pieces, put them in the freezer. Just put them in the freezer. You do that, and when you grind your pre-frozen meat, it will grind beautifully. You'll have no problems. Um, if you're grinding a lot of meat, Get a bowl of ice, keep it near your grinder. After about 20 pounds, go through the grinder, grab a handful of ice cubes, shove them through your grinder, cool everything back down. And you're, you're, and then you know, just kind of take your catch bowl away for your meat, throw a, a little bowl there to catch your ice that's going to come out, put it off to the side, make sure you discard it. You know, you don't want anybody eating that or something or getting it mixed in cross contaminated with their food and just go back to grinding. And, and, and your life will just, You'll be so happy you'll make sausage all the time. Um, also, consider going thicker and coarser with your grind than you would normally think. A lot of people like to do a double grind. They do a coarse and then a fine. I find if you do everything I just said, if you want a fine grind, you can go one shot and straight to a fine grind and you don't have any problems. Um, but what I'll, what I'll tell you is I have found that you really don't want to use a grinder for stuffing. I have one. We did it. It worked. Uh, but I wanted to do a very coarse grind. I wanted when you cut the sausage, I want you to be able to look in there and see the texture of the meat, if you've ever seen a sausage like that. And we did a wagon wheel for the first grind, about the coarsest grind that grinder would do, and it looked beautiful. And then I was careful with mixing it, so I didn't overmix. And... We had a bunch of jalapeno and garlic in there. This is the sausage I just talked about. And when we ran it back through the grinder, even though there was no blade or plate, it was just straight through a tube, but going back to that screw, that screw really emulsified it heavily, 
and really changed the texture to a more conventional sausage texture, which was not what I was looking for. I was looking for a more meaty, beefy texture in this sausage. If you use a stuffer, and the one I recommend is the five-pound stuffer from Lem Products. Again, everybody wants 20 pounds, 30 pounds. It's smaller, it stores better, and it's just not a big deal to unscrew it, take the lid off, and throw another five pounds of meat in. If you're doing 20 pounds of sausage, which is a lot, uh, you're talking about filling it up four times. It's easier to clean. It's less work. It costs less money. Unless you are making you know, 20 pounds routinely a week, get the five-pound stuffer. Uh, there's a couple different options from Lem. One's a manual one. You just kind of push like a plunger in. Uh, and the other one is the one that you twist. I find the one that you turn is a little easier to operate by yourself uh, if you don't have a partner helping you do this. Um, and just overall, it's probably worth the extra money to, to get the vertical with the screw down. That's the one I've linked to, but you can see all the other options Lem uh, has, including electric ones that do like, you know, 30 pounds at a time and they're like $800. Uh, you can get a good five pound vertical stuffer for about 150 bucks. It'll last you your entire life. I looked at a bunch of different varieties when I was considering which one to get. <clears throat> what it came down to is if anything did go wrong with the Lem product, I could get replacement parts, and based on reviews, almost nothing ever goes wrong anyway. So that's why I went with the Lem product. That's the one I would recommend you consider, too. Next, I want to talk a little bit about liver. A lot of people hate liver. I uh, don't hate liver, but I don't like it. Uh, I kind of like fried livers from, like, quails or chickens when they're really fresh. A little bit of uh, flour on them to give them a crisp, quickly fried, not overcooked. I kind of like that. But even that, I don't really like it that much. Um, I really like if you, you know, we shoot rabbits when we go camping and stuff. Um, we'll gut them, remove the gallbladder from the liver, and put the heart and the liver back in the rabbit. Wrap it up in foil and cook that on the uh, over the fire. And that way, rabbit liver is pretty fantastic, actually. But I'm not a fan in general of liver. I use liver in my sausage a lot. Um, I also wouldn't sit down and eat a plate of salt, but it makes food taste better. And that's how I see liver with sausage. The ratio, I would want to stay whatever the weight of the final sausage is, I would want to stay under 5% liver. Uh, so if I was making 5, I'm sorry, under under 10% liver, um, not 5, I don't know why, maybe I was thinking of a number. But So if I was making 5 pounds of sausage, uh, 10% of that would be half a pound. So about a half a pound liver to five pounds. That would be about the maximum I want to go. I would cut back from there. Um, but liver in sausage does some really awesome stuff with it. I've had plenty of people tell me they don't like liver while they're eating my sausage, tell me how good it is. And in most instances, I do use some liver in my sausage. And again, it, it just, it's a good way to use something that I generally would throw away. If I didn't use, um, deer liver in my deer sausage, I would probably throw the deer livers away. I wouldn't bring them home with me. But since I do, and it's funny, um, you end up with the scraps that you take from venison to make sausage. One deer liver works out pretty well uh, in that ratio by the time you add some fat or pork or something like that to cut it on the other side. Uh, almost like it was designed that way. Kind of crazy, huh? Um, so I recommend you consider using it. Um, I also want to talk about sources of fat. You generally want your sausage to be somewhere in the neighborhood of 30, you know, I would say 15 to 30% fat. Some sausage makers will always tell you 30% fat. 
Uh, I say it depends on what you're making, how you're making it, how you're going to cook it, how you're going to prepare it, and why. Um, but you can definitely get away with about 15% uh, fat easily enough in the total volume. And remember, even lean meat has some fat in it, including deer meat. And I, when I grind my deer, I do get rid of all the silver sheen. I do not get rid of all the tallow. I think that we have tallow phobia in the world of wild game. And I've never had anybody say my deer sausage sucked. I'll just leave it at that. And again, I think one of the other reasons people want to get rid of all the tallow, they say it doesn't taste good, but what they're really concerned with is what it does in a grinder. It kind of coats the screw, it wraps up, etc. It causes problems. If you cut your meat into chunks and you freeze your meat and you chill your grinder, your tallow will come right out with your deer meat. It'll taste good. Uh, same with wild uh, feral hog. Um, if I wouldn't eat the fat that's on a hog, I probably wouldn't eat the hog. I'll, I'll just leave it at that. Uh, but some other sources of fat beyond typical pork butt, which is kind of what everybody does. I smoke a few briskets a year for various reasons. I always buy untrimmed briskets. Um, usually there's a lot more fat on there than you need even for the self-basting. Uh, I will take my knife and I will take quite a bit of that fat cap off. Not all of it because I want some of it to cook with the brisket, but I'll take some off. I'll chop it up in pieces that are appropriate for grinding. Uh, I will put it in a bag in the freezer, and I will label it beef fat. And that will be fat that I'll use in a future, um, uh, you know, a, a future sausage batch. Um, I always do take the fat off of wild hogs. If I don't use it right away, I'll do the same thing with it. Um, when I get pork, if the pork has a little bit more fat cap than I want, I will do the same thing, and I will save it for uh, sausage in the future. Um, Any source of fat that I can get, I will cut up into appropriate sizes and freeze uh, for the future. And I just suggest that you consider that. One of the ways I started doing this was a guy that I hired as a contractor to do some work for me in Arkansas. And this is a guy that kind of lived on deer meat to a large degree. Uh, he had a permit to hunt inside uh, what they call the villages up there, archery only. And the deer are like dogs inside there because they're only hunted for that brief period of time with special permits. And uh, so he'd shoot like 18 deer a year. And he would go to um, Sam's Club. And I'm not a big fan of Sam's Club, but that's where he would go. And he would buy like, you know, a full ribeye and cut his own steaks off it. And he would take that extra fat off, and there you go. So any source you can come up with the fat, the gold standard, of course, being pork fat, specifically fat back. I've used bacon a lot, um, a great... Additional thing, if you have like a local butcher shop or something that sells pork belly, um, you go buy a, a full slab of pork belly, take off enough to make sausage with and braise the rest of the pork belly. That's a fantastic fat. Again, as long as you freeze it and do the things I said, you'll have good results with it. Um, and I, I just kind of going through the basics of making a sausage, um, I use, I generally do five pound batches. That's kind of like it makes it enough to make it worth doing, but it doesn't have to be a lot of work. And then everything scales. If I want to go 10 pounds, I double things. I, sausage needs salt. I use about three tablespoons toward a five-pound batch, and you can just do the math. If you want to make a one-pound test batch, just divide three by five and figure out how much you use. And I think you come out with like two teaspoons of salt. Uh, something like that. That's not, it's like a teaspoon and a half or whatever it is. And when you make, I usually do, if I do a test batch, I do two pounds because I'm going to eat it. I know I'm not going to make anything that's that bad and I'm not going to want to eat it. Um, so that's kind of your base. And then 
You can follow a recipe, but be intuitive. This is what I really want you to do with this. When I'm using things like, let's say I'm going to do jalapenos and sausage. Well, if I, what I'll do is I'll make a one or two pound test batch, and I'll measure out how much jalapeno I have, and I'll put it in there, and I'll mix it up, and I'll look at it, and say like, if I stuff that, would you know, per a, a standard slice, would there be at least some jalapeno in there? And if there wouldn't, I'll add a little bit more. I mean, that's kind of how I do things. Or, you know, I'll make my test batch and I'll just kind of intuitively, like, I'm going to do paprika with this. I want to go toward the Spanish chorizo world. So I'll do some smoked chorizo. And when I cook it, I'll just say, was there enough in there? Or was there, I need a little bit more? And I do have some recipes for you that I've done all the work. And there's a link in the show notes to a text file of four of my favorite sausages. Uh, I gave that away about two years ago. It's the first time I gave away two of those recipes ever. Uh, they're kind of Spearco secrets. But they all got developed this way, and I want you to have the freedom to do that. Here's some sausages that I've, I've either tried recently or I've made recently that I think really are worth playing around with and learning a little bit more about. Um, I have not made this yet, but the first time I tried this, I'm like, I'm totally making that. Uh, D'Artagnan, pretty cool company. I'll put a link in the show notes where you can see all the stuff they have. Lots of wild games, lots of sausages, lots of charcuterie. Um, a venison cherry. Oh, this is good. And, and anytime you see a commercial product that says venison or beef sausage, it always is going to have, almost always is going to have pork in it. It's probably, you know, 20%, 30% pork, uh, and about 60 to, 60 to 70% venison is somewhere in that nature is probably the ratio they were using. And uh, salt and pepper, I could tell that was in there. Probably a little bit of sage. Uh, I'm not sure. Uh, and I'll probably use some when I make my own. I'll use fresh sage. Um, but the cherries, I'm almost 100% were dehydrated cherries that they had rehydrated probably with some beef stock. Um, I think I will make mine, I will rehydrate my cherries with either a really good red wine or maybe a red, you know, young port uh, wine. Uh, I think that will work really good and then incorporate that into your sausage. Um, another sausage I've always loved that they've made, and I've made my own versions of this, uh, duck armagnac. You can use a cognac. Uh, Armagnac is basically uh, an, orange liqueur, an orange liquor, not a liqueur. So it's like basically an orange brandy is the way to think about it. Uh, it's been aged specifically the way cognac is. It's just a different region of France. And ducks and the French go hand in hand. Uh, French farmers always did ducks. Lots of really great duck dishes come out of France. And basically it's duck and pork and salt and pepper and Armagnac. And the way I made mine... <clears throat> is I took and ground half the duck, and I took a knife, and I cut the other half of the duck into fine little pieces, little cubes. Um, then I did that with about a 20% blend of very fatty pork. I think it was pork belly when I did mine. And I also had quite a bit of uh, duck hearts and goose hearts, and those went into it, and it was sublime. It was so much better than... And what you can get from D'Artagnan is good, I would put mine next to theirs in a competition any day and expect to win. Uh, I haven't tried this yet, but I mentioned this when we were going through. I think a turkey cranberry sausage would be cool. Um, especially the big turkeys that I, I raise. I raise these huge birds, and you end up with a lot of like back meat and stuff like that. I used to have doing stocks and soups and stuff. Uh, we stripped a lot of that down and, and did a, a, a turkey tetrazzini uh, with kind of an Alfredo-type thing this year for the workshop. That worked out really good. Uh, but all of that turkey would work, make a good sausage, and I think doing it with cranberries would be good. I wouldn't use fresh cranberries. I'd usually call them craisins, the dehydrated cranberries. 
And so, so this is why I say you got to just like give shit a try. So Louis Jadot uh, makes a, a wine called Beaujolais Villages, and it's made from a grape, a grape, a grape, a grape called Gamay, and it's a very fruity upfront uh, red wine, ta like a table wine. It's it's the classic. Uh, wine that you would pair with turkey and cranberries and stuffing on the table, so, and it's cheap. It's you know it's eight bucks a bottle. Um, it's a young wine. It's designed to be consumed young. So why not go out and get some dehydrated cranberries and take that that gamay based uh, Beaujolais Villages Louis Chaudot, um and use just enough of that wine. You can drink the rest, right, to rehydrate your cranberries and do that with turkey. Uh, you could even get crazy here. What if you what if you used um, a um, some stale breadcrumbs uh, and did almost a turkey stuffing and cranberry sausage? Well, how would you do that? Well, why wouldn't we just take? Um, you got to kind of figure out by eyeballing this, right? But take your breadcrumbs, your 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 stuffing, and rehydrate those with turkey stock. Rehydrate your cranberries with the gamay wine. Uh, take your ground turkey, incorporate that all together, stuff it. That might be cool, huh? Um, jalapeno and garlic and the meat of your choice. I did that with venison and wild boar this year. Uh, but seriously, jalapeno and garlic mixed with just about any meat, you can't go wrong. Um, I do a simple venison black pepper. It's really simple. It sounds too simple to be a sausage. Uh, I'm not going to go through it now because the, the ingredients are and the whole process for it is in my uh, my text file that I have for you guys. You can download and, and get that today. But that is don't let the simplicity fool you with that. That is a sausage I'll put up again against anybody's sausage. And I have a, a kind of a, a standard breakfast sausage mix uh, that I do based on a, a recipe that started with what Keith Snow gave me as a basic sausage recipe. And I played with it and did some things with it and made it my own. And then even with that one, it's really a classic breakfast sausage is what I came up with. His was more of an Italian. And uh, so I came up with something that's a lot more like, you know, a good version of like an Owen sausage. And then I have the way to alter it to turn it into a true Italian sausage. And it's just a few more things and some different things you do. And you add a little bit of sugar to it to bring certain things out. And that's all there. But I want you to kind of think, like, how crazy could we get here? See, I'm thinking like my wife is like, I like sausages sort of, but not always. And I think if you don't like sausage, you don't like food. Because all it is is meat and herbs and stuff put together. So she loves pot roast. What if we did a pot roast sausage? What? Okay, so we would use a beef or we could use a venison, a red meat. Or what if we did this then? So we, we do a grind. Maybe we do a really coarse grind. And we do a, gr a grind cube combination I talked about before. That's where we take a portion of the meat and we grind it and a portion of it and we cube it. Oh, my recipe list is my venison andouille. Fantastic. It uses that same technique. So what if we ground you know, 70% of the beef and we cubed 30% of the beef? It's going to be a little bit of work, but you know, if it's five pounds, it's not that much. There's a little bit of cubes. We bring in some fat, and so that we can stay in the world of pot roast, now we use that beef fat. So if we're doing five pounds of meat, we bring in you know another pound of fat. That beef probably is not really super lean, though, so maybe you only bring a half to a quarter pound of additional fat to the party. Just depends. We eyeball it. 
But then we want to make pot roast. So what, what's pot roast? What's classic? Carrots and potatoes. Okay? Carrots and potatoes. Parsley. So what if we get dehydrated carrots and dehydrated potatoes? The little cubes. Perfect for making sausage. And we use those like a panade a binder in sausage or meat, meatballs, they call it a panade. We take our breadcrumbs, we soak them in milk, and it helps hold the moisture in the meatball so the meatball doesn't dry out. So we're basically going to make a carrot and potato panade. Well, why don't we rehydrate that in beef stock? See? Now we got more flavor coming to the party. Of course, we got to have some garlic. So we could use dehydrated garlic. How much? I don't know. Eyeball it. So there's a little bit in every bite, Right? So we take a, a, a granul, not a granulated, a dehydrated garlic and some dehydrated onions and some dehydrated carrots and some dehydrated potatoes, put them in a little saucepan, just barely cover them in beef stock, simmer them, shut it off, and let it sit. Let it sit until they take up all of that juice. Okay. Now we incorporate that back into our meat mixture. We use, again, per five pounds, about three tablespoons of salt and fresh chopped parsley. Let that sit overnight in the refrigerator, stuff it, and we have a pot roast beef sausage. How would that taste? I don't know, but I bet it would be good because I've never made it yet. I'm going to for my wife. Now, when did I come up with that? About 10 minutes ago while I was talking about all this other stuff. Why? Because it's that simple. What would go together? You know, everybody and their mother now in the sausage world and in stores makes chicken apple. Let me tell you why they make chicken apple, because there's a lot of waste cheap chicken, and you can make a cheap-ass sausage. But what really goes with apples classically well is pork. What if you did a pork sausage with apples, but then you incorporated bacon? So we could either do a straight-up bacon the way you normally think of bacon going into a sausage, but what if we baked that bacon... Until so it was about 80% done. And then we took that bacon and we, because we didn't take it till it's crisp. We want it still to be soft so it'll slice well. We sliced it into ribbons. And we incorporate that into a pork and apple. And you know what I would add with that? Bourbon. I'd add some bourbon with that. And cracked black pepper, salt, three tablespoons to the five pounds. I defy that to not be good. And that's the creativity I want you to kind of get into your mind today. So with that, I wanted to stay a little bit about meats that people don't think of that make good sausages. Lamb. Lamb makes fantastic sausage. How about this? What if we made a lamb sausage and we did that lamb sausage with rosemary and thyme, of course, salt and pepper, a little bit of garlic. Okay, now when we cook that sausage and we get the drippings, We take fingerling potatoes and we finish the fingerling potatoes. Now you've got this classic pairing of potatoes and rosemary with a lamb sausage. I mean, it, it, it just kind of, see, that's one of those things like, well, how do you come up with that? It kind of, if you know the pairings that are classic and culinary pairings, then it kind of writes itself. Um, mutton. This is another thing I think people think of lamb and sheep as the same. Lamb is a different, it's like saying veal and beef are the same in, in, a, in a lot of ways. Uh, and the reason I bring up mutton In the state of Texas, we have an awful lot of exotic game, and there's a lot of wild sheep, and you're really into the mutton world. And a lot of hunters that 
shoot those, only shoot them for the horns and a mount or something like that. And I don't know, a, a sheep that looks more like it belongs in a barnyard than in the wilderness is not something I generally want to make a trophy out of. Uh, though they have a pretty cool, like a European style skull mount. But a lot of places they're really inexpensive to hunt. A lot of the deer hunts, you know, you can add them on for not a lot of money and things. And there actually is some skill in hunting them because they're pretty wild critters when they're left to themselves. Um, but they don't know what to do with them. Well, make sausage out of them. Goose. Um, I tell you, goose makes incredible sausage. It's pretty fatty meat to begin with. It's very rich meat. Uh, a lot of guys, I mean, geese used to be, I remember when I was a kid, we used to have a goose stamp, like a turkey stamp. In Pennsylvania, you could shoot two geese a year, and you had to put your stamps on them. And now the geese are everywhere. It's just a, it's a, it's a great conservation success story. Then there's places where geese, they limit six or eight a day. And guys are going out and they're shooting these geese, and they're they're just basically breasting them out. They they cut open the the goose and they take the two breast cutlets off. A lot of times they because the skin's great. So guys, when like when they're fresh, the, the, you can pluck the breast really easy on a on a goose, a Canadian or a snow goose. So they'll pluck the breast and then they cut that off and they just throw the rest of it away. It takes a couple seconds to reach down inside, pull the the, the thigh skin up. And take the 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 the, bre the uh, thigh and and leg cutlet that leg quarter out, not plucking it, no skin, no, just pull that out, and then go in grab the liver and the heart, and the sausage that you can make with that. It's it, it, it's sinful how much of that gets wasted. Um, shrimp and crawfish. I'm not kidding. No, I mean think about it. Like a classic gumbo is like a sausage and crawfish gumbo. So why not make a, a, a pork, like an Andouille-style sausage, with crawfish right inside of it? You could even do rice in there. I mean, boudin is basically a rice and liver and pork sausage. Well, you can do that. I, well, you'd want to cook your rice in advance. You'd want to do something like, why not take like a stock that you make from your crawfish shells, uh, or if you don't want to go that, you know, you don't want to go that route, you get like a, a better than bullion shrimp or fish base, and do your rice in that. Let that suck that juice up and use that as your binder. Um, and also, I mentioned this in passing, but hearts. Um, I don't know that I would make a sausage out of heart. But just like I talked about adding liver, heart is just a great thing to add to any sausage. It adds a richness and a meatiness. And you can either do it in little chunks, but I don't like that because it tends to get tough. Um, freeze it, throw them right through the grinder. Just fantastic. And a lot of times you can get a beef heart. Or like half a beef heart at a lot of your your local uh, you know your supermarkets. Uh, any place with a high Hispanic population seems to sell them more than others. I guess it's more of a thing there. But I love heart in general. I'll take beef heart, cut it into strips, throw it on the grill, cook it medium, like a steak, and it's fantastic. Deer hearts. I, I'm always the guy if I go hunting where a bunch of people are, nobody seems to want to take deer hearts. I'm always the heart collector. Uh, just cook that on the grill, but it makes fantastic sausage. Uh, so if you can get a hold of beef heart or something like that, and you know. Add a, a you know a quarter of a beef heart to your five pound sausage batch, no matter what it is. Uh, goose hearts, duck hearts, and chicken hearts, lamb. Uh, there was a place here where I can get lamb hearts. Uh, they do pastured lamb and stuff like that. They sell the lamb hearts for almost nothing. Uh, again, I'll grill them and stuff like that, but they're fantastic additions to sausage. You know, in the neighborhood of two to 
two to five percent of the total volume will add something to it. Ten uh, percent, you know, kind of in the in that neighborhood of liver. So heart and liver added to sausage it just brings a beefy. Even if it's not a beef heart, just a beefy kind of thing to your sausage. It's really cool. And, and what you can come up really is the, with is the point. Like any, like if you think like these things go together well, then they probably would go together well in a sausage if you just get creative about how you do it. And then think about kind of layers of flavor and what goes in when and how. When we talked about the pot roast sausage, which I've never done, and I'm going to have to try it, you know, we're rehydrating the vegetables, but when it comes to the parsley, we're going to use a fresh chopped parsley that goes in right at the end. You also have to think about, like, how much do you want to emulsify sausage? Like, there's you can mix sausage to the point where it comes all kind of combines into like this pasty thing, more like a British banger or something like that. And that's great if that's a sausage you're looking for, but you can also have more of a meaty sausage that when we cut it open, we can look and we see those individual pieces and there's a chunk of fat there and a little piece of meat there. And, and, and a lot of that, yes, it does have to do with how coarsely we grind the meat, uh, whether we grind it once or twice, Uh, or if we, if we cut it up, but a lot of that has to do with mixing as well. And if we really heavily mix stuff, then we end up with a much more emulsified product. And you can determine that when you're making, if you're hand mixing, you get to a point where the fat starts to coat your fingers like a skin, and that's when you've really got into that emulsification state. And that's not good or bad. It is what it is, and it, what are you trying to accomplish? Kind of on that note, um, Scott Ree. Uh, has a pretty cool YouTube channel. I've featured him before on the show. He has a sausage-making masterclass. I almost didn't put the link in today to his thing because if you watch that, a lot of what he's going to tell you is different than what I told you, and I don't want you to get locked into what either one of us said. So he's making a very classic British-style sausage. You'd call it a banger, um, and there's nothing wrong with what he's doing, but I want you to understand that it's a way to make sausage, not the way to make sausage. There are as many ways to make sausages as there are ideas for making sausage. But give some thought into being unconventional. Like I said when I talked about adding the bacon to a pork and apple sausage, par-cooking the bacon so that it has a different texture and doing ribbons with it so that when you're eating it, instead of a little bacon bit, you've got this kind of chewy bacon thing going on with the ground pork and the apple blended back in. And then the, the, the flavor of like a cracked black pepper with bourbon with that. What world could that not be good in? So why isn't anybody doing it? Well, because it's, it's unconventional. And it would be hard to make a product like that on a, on a large scale. It, it really would. And, you know, you know, to be a Johnsonville making that or something like that. And that's the beauty of this. Like people say, well, like, can you make a sausage just like, you know, uh, a, a Johnsonville bratwurst? I don't want to. I, it, it actually is kind of a challenge, but I really don't want to. And the reason I don't want to is the same reason I don't want to make a Budweiser when I'm making beer. Actually, when people make fun of Budweiser, I'm like, you know, if you're a homebrewer, let me see you make some Budweiser. Because there's nothing to hide your flaws behind. It's a difficult thing. But if I want Budweiser, they have it at the store, you know, for, for $12 for a 12-pack of Jumbos or whatever. I don't, I don't want to make what I can buy. I want to make what I can't buy. Or I want to make what if I buy is really expensive. Yeah, I can buy venison cherry sausage, but a little bit of it costs a lot of money. But I got like, I've got like 30 pounds of ground, ground venison in various forms out there in the freezer right now. I can go down to the store and get some dehydrated cherries and I can make the shit out of some venison cherry sausage for next to no money. 
And that's what I love about sausage making and tying it back into the way this show's combined today. That's what I love about mead. Good mead's expensive. There are good meaderies making good commercial meads. I don't think that any of them so far that I've had are as good as what you can make at home because they can't be, because they can't take the time and they can't get as individualized and they can't get as customized as you can at home. Um, and they have to play to the bigger market. So if you're like, if you like a dry mead, um, you won't find a lot of them. You know, the driest meads you find are sweeter than I want. But eat when you do find a good one, you know, a, a bottle is twenty, thirty dollars. Well, you know, you can get decent honey like Dutch Gold for about three to four dollars a pound. So that means you got twelve dollars worth of honey, a dollar's worth of yeast, water, and then however much your fruit is that might be off your tree for free into a gallon, which produces about four to five bottles. So if you went and bought that, you're talking eighty to one hundred twenty dollars. And you're making it for under 20. You can make, again, the Venice and cherry sausage. I think I got like, oh God, it wasn't even a full pound that I got for the workshop. It was, you know, and cutting little pieces. And I got two little pieces. And, and I had like freaking 40 bucks into that stuff. I could make that. I mean, if I made it with beef instead of venison, or I made it with lamb instead of venison, you know, I can make that by the pound for under 10 bucks a pound. So for 40, I got to make four or five pounds of the stuff. And I guarantee you, when I'm done perfecting what I'm going to do, I'm going to be better than they are. It's going to taste better than they are. That's why this is a life skill. It lets you eat like a freaking king on a pauper's budget. Because, you know, Scott Ree makes a comment that, you know, sausage all used to be about lips and assholes, is what he says, you know, and you can't just do that anymore and you don't, shouldn't want to. But that's really not accurate. That, that was, you know, that's a hot dog, which is, I guess is a type of sausage. Sausage has always been all these little bits and bobs of meat that are really good and flavorful, but they don't really work as a steak or they don't really work as a roast. Or this animal was a bit old and this particular cut that's a decent cut off a young animal is pretty tough on an old one. So let's grind this up and do something with it. And then let's make something really awesome out of it. Let's take that which would otherwise be scraps and turn it into something phenomenal and fantastic. That's what today's show is all about, is how can you do that? And then take that, again, life skills. How can you do that in your life? What else can you do that with? It's not just food and drink. There's so many things in life that really the best stuff comes from creativity and asking the question, what if, and let's, well, why not let's find the hell out? And then having the courage and the guts and a little bit of time and a little bit of skill and go, let's go do that and let's see what happens with it. So I hope you enjoyed today's show. I'd like to hear from you with your ideas for meads and sausages, either that you've made or you've just come up with and you think you want to give a try. Um, I don't want to be the guy that's like, okay, you need exactly this much of that, because that's totally counter what I'm saying today. But if you have any ideas for a sausage or something like that or a mead or a cider or whatever and you'd like my input on it, comment today's show. I'll, I'll give you my thoughts on it either in a future episode or right back in the comments of, of the show notes on the blog. Again, today's episode is episode 234. With that, if you like this show and the work that we do and want to support us, you can do that a couple ways. One, you can join the Member Support Brigade. Just go to the survivalpodcast.com. Click on Members to learn more. Use the discounts. Your membership pays for itself, and you get to support us at about you know 18.3 cents an episode. Let me tell you something, guys. If you make a couple different batches of meads and sausages from today's show, if you join the MSB, your membership just got paid for. In real hard dollars that you would have spent to buy that versus make it. 
I'm telling you right now. Uh, and even like if you invest in a good grinder, uh, the TurboForce grinder is the one I recommend, um, and the uh, and the Lem stuffer. Like if you invest in those, this is off of the MSB now. If you invest in those and you make your own sausage, you will pay for them easily in a single season. Because you know you're talking about investing about 300 bucks. And when you look at some of these gourmet sausages, it doesn't take much before you're out $300. So I just want to say that the, the, the whole concept that we're preventing today is a, a good investment. That brings me to the other way you can support us. All the links that are in today's show notes, either go to Amazon or my past reviews. And if you do your online shopping at, um, at tspaz.com, whenever you shop online, you help support us and the work we do no matter what you buy. And it is the time of year people are spending, you know, quite a bit of money. So when you're, when you're, buying stuff for Christmas or whatever, think about us. Um, when I talked about making mead today, I talked about hot water. And what I don't think I said is the way that I make my mead in small batch, I use an electric kettle. And that's the item of the day that I have for review for you today. I use a, a kettle by a company called Hamilton Beach. Uh, this kettle that I have has been, well, it's been used hard. Um It's about three years old now. It's probably a little older than that. I use it two to three times a day, at least three times a day on average every day. Because uh, I'll make three batches of coffee or tea every day. And then anything else that it gets done with it. Uh, so you're talking around 300, or 3,285 missions over three years. And it still works. That's a, that's a pretty good mean time between failures, guys. Uh, that's more than most people would use it ever. Uh, you can use this thing to make mead. I use it for coffee and tea. I use it for boiling eggs. Put four eggs in it with water in it. Turn it on. Let it come up to a boil. It'll shut itself off when it hits a boil. Let it cool down. Take the eggs out. They're perfectly boiled. Four eggs per batch every time. Um, my buddy, uh, Colonel Roy, a uh, good friend of mine, I let this guy hang since August. He was at my place in August. He was asking me about the kettle. He saw the kettle. He goes, I got a question for you, Jack. And I said, what's up, Roy? He goes, how do you get eggs in and out of that thing without breaking them? It's pretty small if it's handed. And I'm like, you can do it if you do it right. And so I saw him looking at it. And I'm like, I'll let him hang. And I decided when I brought this product back around today to, to I put Roy in the PS. You use tongs, man. Like tongs you cook with to turn chicken or whatever. You can grab your eggs and you stick them inside there. And then when it's done, you use the tongs to get them out. That's, that's all. Anyway, it's a great product. It's about 25 bucks. And I've sold hundreds of these, not thousands, but hundreds of them uh, over the years. And, again, never had a complaint. Really well-reviewed Hamilton Beach Electric Kettle. Perfect for your small batch mead making and everything else. Uh, including one of the things I really like to do with this thing is when I'm cooking and I'm going to need to boil water, it takes time for water to come out to boil, I'll throw right at the beginning, I'll, I'll fill this kettle, it holds 1.7 liters and turn it on. It takes four minutes to bring that to a boil. And then when I'm cooking later is I need to get like a pot of water boiling or something, I'll just dump that hot water in there and everything just goes faster. So that's another way that I use it. But remember, please... When you shop online, if you shop at tspaz.com, you can help the Survival Podcast no matter what you buy. That brings us to our song of the day today. Um, as I said, I preempted John Adams' choices. Actually, John, if you're listening, your choice for Friday will go as planned because it is exactly the type of thing that I'm doing this week. I'm doing songs that either aren't Christmas songs but are thought of Christmas songs this week, uh, thought of as Christmas songs this week, or songs that 
are Christmas songs, but are not, you know, Frosty the Snowman, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, Silent Night, Oh Holy Night. Not generally, like, if you went out and went Christmas caroling, you wouldn't expect to hear them. If you went to the Christmas Symphony, you wouldn't expect to hear them. In most Christmas movies, you wouldn't expect to hear them. And then when you hear them, like, oh, yeah, that song, that is a great song for Christmas. Uh, yesterday we did uh, Baby It's Cold Outside as a middle finger to the social justice warriors that think it's a rape anthem. And because I think it's a really cool song and because it's not a, uh, it's not a Christmas song. It actually has nothing to do with Christmas, but it became a Christmas song because Baby It's Cold Outside. Today we're doing a song that absolutely is a Christmas song. It's from the 1980s from probably the most successful country music band ever, Alabama, who probably is the country band that made country music what it is in the modern day. Um, and it's called Christmas in Dixie. And it's a straight-up Christmas song, but it, again, it's not the song you think of when you think of a Christmas song or Christmas carols or something like that. And I picked it today because it does two things. One, it fits my mold for this week. It's a Christmas song that you don't think is a general Christmas song. It's not in the rotation on every station playing Christmas music on the radio, et cetera, like that. And it's a good song in of itself. Um, but the other thing is what I love about music is when music can take you to a place. When music can take you to a place and time in your life and cue in a way you felt or a way that you, you, you something you tasted or like one of the most powerful things to bring you back to a place and a point in time is a smell. An example of that is whenever I uh, do any gardening, if there's tomatoes involved and you either brush the tomato plant or they get hit with a little bit of water, then you get that smell of the tomato plant. I'm, I'm a 10-year-old kid in my grandfather's garden. For just that long, man, I'm there. There's one line in this song, and it doesn't talk about smell. And it doesn't talk about quiet. And it doesn't talk about any of the things that this brings up for me. But it doesn't take me back to Dixie. It takes me back to Pennsylvania. And it's snowing in the pines. That's the line in that song. And when I hear that, I think of being out in the Pennsylvania deer woods and hunting, still hunting, where you're moving through, you're stalking, tracking. And you're, you know, all the leaves are off the trees. Everything's pretty open. You can see really good. And there's wind, and you can hear the wind howling. And, you know, uh, the, the leaves that are still on the trees the last bit, every time the wind comes, you can hear them rustling and falling. And every step you take makes noise, and you're trying to find that place to put your feet and be quiet, even when there's snow and the snow crunches. And, and then you come into a pine grove, a stand of pine trees. And you know it's a good place to hunt because the deer go in there because it's quiet and they can hear, and it blocks the wind. It's a good place to bed down, dig some snow out, and they've got the pine straw to lay in. You go into those pines, and there's something about those pines when that snow is sitting on those boughs and the smell of those pines and that wind that could be like whoosh, just quiet. And if it's warmed up just enough that the ice has come off the snow, even walking in the snow in those pines, it's like walking on a carpet, and it's quiet. And even if you're not hunting, even if you're just out scouting around or walking or whatever in the winter in those types of woods and you find that place in those pines, especially if you find a place where the snow's melted away and the pine straw is exposed and it's dry, it's hard not to just sit there for a moment and be in that place. Feel the quiet 
and feel the protection that the forest provides if only we see it. That's the reason those animals bed down in those pine trees. And even if it's not all that, even if it's just being somewhere, like when we were in Dixie in Arkansas and we had the pine trees on the mountain and we would get the snow, and you'd go out and you'd see that snow on those pine bombs weighing those trees down, something special about it. And again, the smell, that smell of the pine combined with the cold air and the snow, it's just something really cool. And it's what this, that one line of that song has always made me think of. I'm either in those PA deer woods or just taking a walk somewhere where the pine trees are and the snow's in them and that quietness. There's a, a, a line this makes me think of that has nothing to do with, with pine trees, um, but it's, it, it's by Jack London, one of my favorite articles or, or authors from history. And he's talking about the tundra here. He's talking about the great white north. And those pine trees, to me, have always been a little taste of what he was talking about in that great white expanse. Here's what, it is. Here's what he said. Nature has many tricks wherewith she convinces a man of his finity. The ceaseless flow of the tides, the fury of a storm, the shock of the earthquake, the long roll of heaven's artillery. But the most tremendous, the most stupefying of all, is the passive phase of the white silence. All movement ceases, the sky clears, the heavens are as brass, the slightest whisper seems sacrilege, and man becomes timid, affrightened at the sound of his own voice. Soul speck of life journeying across the ghostly wastes of a dead world, he trembles at his audacity, realizes that his is a maggot's life and nothing more. Strange thoughts arise unsummoned. The mystery of all things strive for utterance and fear of death, of God, of the universe comes over him. The hope of resurrection and life, the yearning for immortality, the vain striving of the imprisoned essence. It is then, if ever, man walks alone with God. And that's from the white silence. While not to that level, that silence in those pines, that smell, that peace, that's what this song brings to me. It's funny how one line properly presented in a good piece of music can do so much. With that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't.
It's windy in Chicago The kids are out of school There's magic in Motown The city's on the move In Jackson, Mississippi It's a peaceful Christmas time Christmas in Dixie It's snowing in the pine Merry Christmas from Dixie God bless y'all. We love you. Happy New Year. Good night. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas.